Has it ever occurred to you, Oedipa, that somebody's putting you on, that this is all a hoax, maybe something in Verarity set up before he died? It had occurred to her, but like the thought that someday she would have to die, Oedipa had been steadfastly refusing to look at that possibility directly, in any but the most accidental of lights. No, she said, that's ridiculous. Interesting that you would choose that quote, Christian, because that's basically what I thought while reading this book. No, that's ridiculous. This is a hoax that you're just putting on to mess with me. What the fuck is this book? You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to, um, what was that called again? Uh, outside of a... Um, outside... Of a dog. Right, outside, outside of a dog. Of a dog. That doesn't make any sense, though. I mean, what does that have to do with literature? It can't be right. Oh, yeah, literature. That's what you talk about, right? Um, It's where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Yeah, it's been a while. It was a better time, a time before we knew that Donald Trump was the new president, and now he's actually already inaugurated as president, so... Yeah, we've been off the air for a while. Christian, actually, I was reminded of that when I listened to the newest episode of our friends uh, over at Science Pie, who have been off the air as well for a while, and they had very exciting news that they're publishing a book, which is why they were off. Uh, Christian, why don't you share with our listeners why we have been off the air? Um, because we are idiots that can't get our stuff together and yeah. actually meet up and do a podcast together. Yeah, that, that's exactly the reason. It's yeah. not because of any good news. It's no. literally just that we fucked up. I mean, you're still in Ireland. and I'm still um, in Ireland. I, and as it turns out, um, if you actually start doing all the work that you're supposed to do at university, it takes up quite a lot of time, which I only really realized once I came here. So we have actually decided that we are going to scale things back a bit. Um, our attempt is going to be that we publish a full episode of the podcast on a book every month, and that then for the second episode of the month, we instead publish a short little mini-sode on a poem or a short story. Does that sound good? No, please stress on attempt. 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 We'll see how that goes, but it's it's, it's a good plan. But fitting our focus on shorter pieces of writing, what we will be discussing today has been called by its author a short story with serious gland problems. (laughs) Um, The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon. And if you listen to the introduction, you may have noticed that Jonas is maybe asking a few questions um, regarding this book. This book book quite literally fucked with my mind. I was very confused by this book, and I have a lot of questions to ask a Christian. But the first of these questions would be, who is this person who wrote this book? Who is Thomas Pynchon? We don't know. Thomas Pynchon is the last big mystery in world literature. We actually don't know who he is, whether his name is actually Thomas Pynchon or whether it's something else. Famously, he voiced himself on an episode or two episodes of The Simpsons, actually, where he was wearing a paper bag over his head. The things we do know about Thomas Pynchon are that he was born in 1937, that he studied creative writing in the class of Vladimir Nabokov at Cornell, that he worked as a copywriter for Boeing, and that he became one of the most important and most famous voices of postmodernism, at least American postmodernism. Crying of Lot 49 was his first big success. And then he published only a few books, but he 
still publishes to this very day. Um, so he's still around. We still don't know who he is. Um, but his vision is one of the most important ones in American literature, that is for sure. The book, well, from what I've read, it's one of Pynchon's most straightforward kinds of stories, which I find intriguing. <laughs> it is quite convoluted, quite uh, meandering. Uh, I was thinking, you, you mentioned he was a copywriter for Boeing. This book essentially <laughs> it reads like uh, a Boeing flight if the plane hits turbulence and then crashes into the ocean. <laughs> uh, it starts out fairly straightforwardly. It's about a woman called Oedipa, just one of the many ridiculous names we have in this book, who is made the executor of the will of her ex-boyfriend, which confuses her because she isn't a lawyer and she has no clue about how to execute a will. And whilst going through that will and the, her ex's possessions, she finds out about a kind of underground society called the Tristero movement, which has to do with a kind of radical liberalism and anti-authoritarian resistance to the state, but also mainly it seems with mail delivery. It also then goes into the history of all of this going back to the days of the turn and taxes, mail monopoly in the German Empire, the Thirty Years' War, a revenge tragedy from the 17th century, which is excessively featured in the novel as a kind of play within the play. She starts uncovering more and more about this clandestine system of delivering the mail and grows obsessed with it. She meets other people who seem to know about it, but she also isn't quite sure what is real and what is not real anymore. And slowly she descends into what might be paranoia, but maybe they really are after her, whoever they may be. It's a short book, a novella more or less, but there are a lot of things happening. And so that maybe brings us to your confusion more or less. One of my first confusions was actually about the time when this was written and released. It came out in 1966 and I have for a long time held the opinion that nothing of literary value was produced in the 1960s and 70s. I think we had an argument about that at a couple of points, haven't we? Um, I just generally thought that everything I ever read that was written in these two decades was absolutely dull and horrible. And people kept bringing up Thomas Pynchon. And now you made me read Thomas Pynchon, and I have to agree. This is definitely a very impressive book. Uh, but it is also quite confusing. It is definitely a challenging read to me, not just because it made me uh, reevaluate my prejudices against the 1960s. Well, it is a 1960s book in more than one respect. Um, I think one thing that is quite clear is is that its setting is very much bound to that decade because I would disagree actually okay I, I think, I think th there are these a couple of things for example the band they're called the paranoids who are uh, attempting to be like the Beatles but they're Americans so they sing with English accents <laughs> at one point one of them cannot drive his car anymore because he can't see through his hair those are very 1960s things But I think all these things like the paranoia, the, or the obsession with uh, intrusive government, the obsession with information and how it's controlled, and this looking back at history, looking back from the 1960s to the 1660s, you could say. I think those are all very contemporary obsessions that are still with us today. Well, I mean, why do you, you think this is a very 60s book? I mean, if you generalize it like that, um, you could say it could be a contemporary book as well. But I think it is a 1960s book because it has this focus on the culture wars, basically. The focus of the book 
is to a large degree on the clash between the mainstream culture and the hidden or underground culture. And I think what is very interesting is that the big conspiracy that might or might not happen, the Trustero conspiracy, is a very conservative, that it is about the oppression of knowledge and of communication and so on. So I think yeah, that imagine, is very- imagine living in a society where there's a group of people who clandestinely try to control information and there's this whole <laughs> shift to the right and like this group who wants to gain more control role and like basically uh, a kind of fascist establishment in say the united states <laughs> imagine that of course yeah you can say that that has been around for forever and it's still there but the kind of antidote or maybe just the the counterculture is the 1960s counterculture it's sex and drugs and what pinchin does is basically look at these things and say well they're not a solution either i think That's very interesting that his view on these 1960s things like free love and drugs and opening your consciousness to cosmic whatever is a very skeptical one. That That, that is quite interesting. Um, When her shrink tries to prescribe her LSD and when her husband starts taking LSD, our protagonist, Edipa, is always completely against it. And you also don't get the impression as the reader that LSD is this great mind-opening thing. You rather think, oh my god, this guy is just losing his marbles. And the sex thing as well, that basic free love means that every guy she meets is just trying to sleep with her. And it usually is not a very good thing. Even the one affair she has with Metzger, the good-looking lawyer, is, from our perspective, extremely non-consensual and yeah. very rapey. Definitely. And also, he, he looks good at the beginning, at least, and she thinks, oh, that's a nice, good-looking. But then when he actually takes off his clothes, uh, he has a beer belly and... He's not that attractive as he seemed in the first glance. And then also uh, the sex actually turns out to be rather catastrophic and she is completely drunk. And as you said, it's not really that consensual and it just leaves you with this kind of icky feeling. And he also runs away with a 15-year-old in the end. So there you have that. Um, what I think uh, did, is... Didn't you say that uh, Pynchon was in Nabokov's writing class? Yes, there hmm. is an hmm. actual uh, explicit reference to these Humbert Humbert cats in one of the songs by the Paranoids. And two uses of the word nymphette. Yes, and the uh, lesson of the guy singing the song whose girlfriend runs away with Metzger is basically, okay, if, if the older guy runs away with the 15-year-old, then I start prowling the playgrounds for an 8-year-old that uh, I will run away with. And that is even ickier. But that's that part of Pinchin's whole unease with this whole sexual liberation exactly. and free love thing, couldn't you say? Exactly. Yeah. What I also think is very 1960s is, you mentioned the look back, but not so much to look back to the 1660s, but the look back to the Second World War. There is this strange episode where Oedipus Shrink basically goes mad and reveals that he was a doctor at Buchenwald. And they did strange experiments with the prisoners there, trying to them turn mad, basically. There is this notion of this look back that these are times where very strange things are happening. And it's interesting that it's never that explicit apart from that episode. Also, for example, there are always these mentions of Vietnam, but it's never in the foreground. It doesn't play a 
big role, maybe because in 1965 or 66, the Vietnam War was just slowly beginning to be a, a big topic for the American public. But yeah. I think that... But, but that's what makes this... it timeless, you know? These things are mentioned, but, uh, you know, if it's not Vietnam, it's Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, the, these things are constant, so I, I still feel that they're very present nowadays. I mean, at one point, there's a guy uh, talking about Nazi chic and how uh, he's developing a line of SS uniforms as child's fashion. And <laughs> when you then read all these uh, fluff pieces about the alt-right as fashion icons, you kind of think, hmm. Thomas Pynchon, ahead of his time. I don't disagree with you. I think there is something that is very timeless, and I think that's something that reoccurs in Pynchon's work as well over the years. And that's something Still, that I really missed in 60s and 70s literature that I had read so far, outside of fantasy and sci-fi literature, maybe. It was always so tethered to its own time. So this is the first time that I'm reading a novel from that time that actually feels like it could be set almost any time. And that is a true mark of greatness for me that this book seems universal, that this book had so many things that really spoke to me. And maybe that is a good way to, to get to uh, the next part. Uh, I want to talk a bit more about the style and how to read this book, because it is quite challenging, but I enjoyed myself a lot. There are a couple of things in this book that I absolutely loved, and I don't think I've used the highlight function on my Kindle quite as much for any other book that we've read for this podcast. For example, at one point, there's an account of a British traveler in Italy describing a battle against the agents of this Tristera society. They killed all except for Dr. Blob and his servant, who had disassociated themselves from the hassle at the very outset, proclaimed in loud voices that they were British subjects, and even from time to time ventured to sing certain of the more improving of our church hymns. That just sounds so much like English people, doesn't it? Or then there's this beautiful, beautiful description of Oedipus' state of mind, feeling like a fluttering curtain in a very high window, moving up to, then out over the abyss. That is a kind of language that most authors can only dream of reaching. And maybe it again shows the influence of Nabokov, but I think it's also just Pynchon's, well, for lack of a better word, genius. Well, what these things also show is that Pynchon doesn't take himself and his work too seriously. The entire novel is extremely humorous, often a very dark humor. I mean, uh, we mentioned the example of a guy looking for an eight-year-old girlfriend. And there are other aspects where the laughter kind of stays in your throat because there are very dark things happening. Yeah. Murder and drugs and freakouts and all that. But yeah. I definitely laughing. laughed at a couple of points. I, I, I read part of this uh, while sitting in the library here in Trinity. And I sometimes got odd looks from the other people in the uh, in the Usher Library, thinking, what is this guy giggling about? But, I mean, if, if he mentions a band called Sick Dick and the Volkswagens, how can you not laugh at that? That That is one of the most quintessential things about Pynchon, the names. I mean, we have a character called Mike Fallopian. <laughs> or um, we have, my favorite, Genghis Cohen, a lawyer. Or the husband of Edipa, whose nickname is Mucho, because he's Mucho Mas. That is typical... Pinchkin, and I think that. Oh, I just got that, that one. That <laughs> <laughs> just shows you that nothing here is really serious. I mean, the, you could talk about the characters as well. No, no one of these people actually has much of a character. No, even Edipa is just a cipher, kind of our stand-in in this weird world with strange things happening to her. But but she also always just accepts it. At one point, she's walking through San Francisco in this 
fugue state almost, and she meets a group of children sitting around an imaginary campfire in the park, and they say, oh, we're not really here, we're just dreaming this, even though when we wake up, we're going to still be exhausted. So, what? And she just says, oh, okay, cool, and asks them about this, the society she's investigating. And then she just takes it in a stride. And I think that's and something I think you should uh, adopt towards the uh, strangeness of the novel as well, you know? It doesn't make sense. Just accept it. Yes, and I think that is also reflected in the style because the style doesn't differentiate. And often many details are kind of hidden and it is complicated because there is this convoluted plot and there are all these allusions to different things, to contemporary pop culture, to politics, to history, to high culture and so on and so on. But I think the language itself is also quite hard to get through sometimes because it is so dense the sentences are very long and there's and you go what and then there's a song (laughs) yeah and then there's a song and that then there are new characters that are introduced and then just disappear entirely nothing makes sense everything is well absurd and that is often treated with a lot of humor and pynchon's big legacy that he took this postmodern playfulness to its very end that for him nothing really is ordered that everything is just play and you can have fun with the meaninglessness of life and history and so on nothing really matters and it's interesting because Pynchon writes about horrible people but it never seems like he's judging those people he also writes about this radical libertarian right-wing reactionary underground movement which kind of put him in the context of questionable people for example there were rumors stupid rumors but most rumors are that Thomas Pynchon was the Unabomber in the 90s you know it's difficult to tell where he stands really I think what he stands for is um, trying to, well, I I wouldn't say a voice of reason, but at least he tries to stay neutral to a certain degree. And sometimes there is the notion that he, despite the irony, despite the sense of absurdity and humor, that he has this almost scientific interest in society and in people. And it's interesting that one term in particular crops up again and again in his work and in this novel as well, Entropy. Another weird character that Oedipa meets is a scientist, John Nephastus. Again, it's not quite clear. He's Is he a nut job? Is there something that connects him to the stereo network seems to collect? It's not entirely clear, but he is focused on entropy. And entropy, at least in more general sense, is this movement towards chaos, that everything is breaking down. And Again, Nephestus even mentions it, that it is both a physical principle regarding thermodynamics, but it is also about communication. And I think that is about this conspiracy that tries to suppress communication. And Pynchon seems to regard society in a similar light, that it's just natural that everything gets more chaotic, that everything gets more convoluted, that he is not making things up basically that again seems to make it more timeless maybe i I would definitely say so this this idea of of yeah entropy and then has that ever been more relevant than now and i mean by now pinchon also writes about how the internet affects society and has changed the world so he he isn't stuck in the past he's ironically uh an author who stays with the time even though he doesn't stay in the world in that sense oh, in that view it makes sense that his characters are not really characters because they are not individuals they're all just part of this entropy and Oedipa is trying to make sense of it but 
from the very beginning, it's clear that her trying to make sense of it, it's just for her. It's her project. When she talks to the director of the Jacobean revenge tragedy that is somehow connected to the whole Tristero thing. But when she talks to the director, the director says, well, don't read too much into the play. I chose my perspective for this play. I am basically a projector of an entire world. This is what I do, but that's just me. And she seems to do the same thing. She chose to follow the last will of her dead lover. She chose to follow the whole conspiracy. She's the one trying to make sense of it. And in the end, it's quite clear that nothing really makes sense. And we're in the same the same position as she is because we try to make sense. We try to figure out, like you said, is this a joke? Pynchon just taking the piss or is there something more to it? Or maybe both. <laughs> or maybe both. That was another thing, of course, that appealed to me, this long, extensive part of the novel about you know, theater production. Because in a former life, I was, of course, an amateur theater director. So that all sounded very familiar to me, something I could identify with. But what even more appealed to me were all these allusions to early modern history, of course. Because <laughs> that's what I'm doing now. And especially, this is ultimately still a novel about the postal service, the delivery of mail. And that is actually an incredibly important topic. So that is actually my last point that I would really like to discuss. Because this is the genius of Pynchon, really, I think, that he can see a topic like the postal service and not just recognize its immense importance, but also write an incredibly intriguing novel about it. So in the US, the postal service is actually one of the cornerstones of federal power. Listeners to 99% Invisible will recognize this from an episode that they released uh, just last month, all about the post and how the post is really a guarantor of federal power in the US and how it really built the United States of America. How this concept that all over the nation, all of these different colonies and then different states and commonwealths could communicate freely with one another, but that it was still under the control of the federal government, that one of the crimes the federal government could convict you of, even before the establishment of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, was, for example, sending pornography through the mail. And that is really one of the few solid foundations of the power of the federal government in the US, which the US are very skeptical of. <laughs> they are big on, well, for lack of a better term, states' rights. They kind of fought a war over that. But then he also goes back to the German Empire and the Turner Taxes system of the delivering mail. And then there I have a couple of problems. For example, his interpretation of the Thirty Years' War, that he says that after the Thirty Years' War, the empire really disintegrated. I think that's of this weird conglomeration of states. The thing sort of is that he talks a lot about, well, the state and the power of the state. But at the same time, the state doesn't really play a role in this in this novel. The focus is entirely, it's chaotic, it's convoluted, it's underground, it's conspiracy. I think that is one thing that, again, can be um, connected to nowadays, where you have very different forces at the seat of power in Washington. Definitely. You might imagine. Pynchon doesn't see state power as something that is necessarily rational. He <coughs> has a sense of history as very chaotic discourses fighting each other and that doesn't change. But he's he's also aware of this kind of struggle between people trying to impose authority and oppose authority. And I can see why people think that he comes down on the side of the people opposing authority, like uh, the, the, all this talk about civil war heroes, all this talk about people living off the grid. He himself 
kind of living off the grid, arguably. But I don't think it's that easy. I don't think Pynchon is a man who thinks in simple black and white terms and gives us easy answers. I don't think, I don't think that Pynchon is the Unabomber, essentially. No, definitely not. But at least he has a certain empathy and even sympathy for people who, well, who don't fit in. He, he sees the world as chaotic and as people trying to impose order on it, but failing because it is too big, too complicated and too filled with, well, entropy. And yes. I don't think there's a worldview that I could agree with more than that. So coming to our final judgments, I have to say... Thank you, Christian. Thank you for making me read this. Thank you for showing me that, indeed, at least there's a couple of things produced in the 60s and 70s that are of cultural value. And thank you for introducing me to Thomas Pynchon, who I think deserves all the praise he gets and more. I think all of our listeners should pick it up as well. It's it's a crazy ride, but it will definitely leave an impression. I'm glad to hear that. Um, actually, also because I'm not too sure myself whether everyone should read this. I, I, I think in the end, yes. Because Pynchon's voice is so, on the one hand, so unique. I don't know any other author that comes close to this distinct voice that, that he has. On the other hand, he has been incredibly influential. There are so many postmodern authors, films, and so on, that go down the same route, basically, that try to follow his view, and you still have the feeling that they're just copying him. So if you want to try out Pynchon, actually, The Crying of Lot 49 is, as we said, the most accessible start to see whether you like it or not. And afterwards, you can still try out other things. Speaking of other books that people should read after The Crying of Lord 49, let's talk recommendations. Uh, Christian, what else would you recommend? I think many of the books I could recommend, I have already recommended in this podcast, which just shows you that Pynchon fits right into my favorite line of fiction, basically. Um, I've recommended um, Co-Pendulum by Umberto Eco, which also takes up this notion of conspiracies. I've recommended uh, Matt Ruff's Sewer Gas Electric, which takes up the manic energy. So one thing I can definitely recommend is actually another novel by Thomas Pynchon, his very first novel, to be precise, V, because V is still my favorite Pynchon novel. It takes up many of the same notions, but it also manages to be a bit more serious. I mean, obviously, the humor is still there and the absurdity is still there, but with V, you get a feeling of this very deep longing for order that Pynchon kind of portrays, that you have the contrast between trying to make sense of the world and then realizing, no, there is no sense. And then the third step of just going along for the ride and having fun with it. Um, that's the one so, that's about Britain being taken over by a fascist dictatorship and then a guy in a Guy fox mask uh, blows up the Houses of Parliament, right? No, it's about women talking about their vaginas. Ah, I thought it was about a female vice president of the United States. I can't think of anything else. <laughs> I wish. Damn it, damn it. <laughs> um, but there is another thing I would like to recommend, and that brings me back to our most contentious point, whether this is a 60s book or not. And I had the feeling that the atmosphere of the 60s going bad, this dream of love and peace and understanding turning sour and turning into, well, conspiracies and paranoia and drug freakouts and so on. That is historically most obvious, of course, 
in the story of the Manson family and the horrific murders they committed. And this time I would like to recommend another podcast, actually, namely Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This, where she usually talks about the history of Hollywood and the kind of forgotten stories behind the big illusion of Tinseltown. But she has a really good series on the Manson family, connected to Hollywood, connected to certain people in Hollywood, but also a really gripping portrayal of the 1960s at its most violent and its most fucked up, basically. It's a bit like serial (laughs) because it is true crime, you might say, but it's, it's... such an amazing experience to listen to the whole story and see the different perspectives she takes. So I would recommend um, you must remember this in general and the Manson series in particular. I also have two recommendations. Um, my first recommendation is actually a book that I considered as our next topic of discussion on the podcast. But eventually I decided against it. Um, maybe that book is The Plot Against America by Philip Roth, uh, which is... Philip Roth's story of his own childhood. He was born actually around the same time as Pynchon in uh, 33. And it's a vision of his childhood as it might have played out if the American presidency had fallen instead of to Franklin Delano Roosevelt to a Nazi sympathizer. Actually the most famous postman in American history, uh, Charles Lindbergh. Uh, So that is a connection to uh, the crying of Lord 49, this whole postal delivery thing. There's also a philatelist subplot, if you like, with young Philip Roth being a keen collector of stamps. But I think it has a very interesting premise with a really poor execution because ultimately Philip Roth just lacks the balls to do it right. Wow. At the risk of spoiling it. Hmm? Throwing some shade here. Yeah, I mean, I I look forward to the day that Thomas Pynchon is announced as a winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature and Philip Roth just tears himself in half like Rumpelstiltskin. Because ultimately, he fakes out, and spoiler alert, he doesn't go through with it, and the US still get Roosevelt as a president in the end, and then don't join the Second World War on the side of Nazi Germany, and the Nazis are still defeated. I'm like, okay, what was the point of this then, if you aren't even going to say America in this version, and maybe even in reality, has fascist elements in it, what's the point of it? So um, basically, read the book and stop reading at the plane crash and then just imagine your own horrible end to it uh, because that's a much more intriguing version of this book. (laughs) So that's partly why I decided not to make it the next topic of the podcast. And also, I think uh, reading a book about Nazis taking over the US is a bit on the nose in the current climate, isn't it? Um, You think Uh, But my second recommendation is actually a wholehearted recommendation. Um, And, surprise, surprise, I would like to recommend a film. Uh, Namely, (laughs) (laughs) I know, namely my favorite film uh, of last year, The Lobster by Yorgos Lantimos. It's a strange story about a society in which you have to have a romantic relationship. And if you don't, then you have a certain amount of time to find a partner. If you don't, you're turned into an animal. I was reminded of this on the one hand uh, in the part of the novel with the Inamorati Anonymous, basically a society of people who think that being in love is the most dangerous addiction you can suffer from. Uh, But also just the style of it. In The Lobster, everyone speaks in this very deadpan, very strange monotone, which can be quite disorienting when you watch the movie but if you just go with it and you just accept that all of these people accept this absurd way of 
being, talking and doing things, then it's fine and you can enjoy it. One of the best films of the year, The Lobster by Yorgos Lantimos. You concur with this recommendation. The Lobster is a strange film to watch, maybe in a similar way that this book is. And also the soundtrack to The Lobster was an excellent accompaniment uh, for reading this book. It goes very well with it. But if you have already enough confusion in your life and in the world and you don't want any more entropy, then why not tell us? You can write us an email at outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. You can also get in touch on our Facebook page. And you can find us on Twitter at Outside of a Hound. And please rate and review us on iTunes. I know we've been kind of lagging behind, but we're still having fun with this. And I hope you're having fun as well. So why not tell others about us? In two weeks' time, there's actually exciting things ahead for me here in Dublin because you're coming to visit me, uh, which I'm delighted by. Uh, so we will actually be in the same room. We can actually sit next to each other and speak into the same microphone again, which should improve the sound quality a lot. And it also will not have these sort of strange gaps in the recording every now and then. And I thought, you know what? When you're coming to Dublin, let's read a book by an Irish fella again. And it's one that I've wanted to do for a long, long time. So join us next time for our discussion of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. It going to be a book no it's so why a picture it's 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 called the picture of dorian gray so it's a picture thank you very much for listening for more information visit outside of a dogcast.com i, I wouldn't call outcasts. it sympathy but i would say empathy is the right word that he looks at them and says yeah yeah i see your point at least because wait that is sympathy isn't it <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. But what, whatever you said then.